One year ago, George Floyd died under the knee of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Across the country and globe, his death sparked fierce energy that brought into question the role of policing in public safety. Here in the Bay Area, city leaders responded to protesters' demands by making promises around police reform that ranged from cutting police department budgets to deploying mental health counselors. Some measures were implemented quickly, while others have been slow to materialize. And tensions still remain over what the future of policing will even look like. And we wanted to see how and if progress has been made in the Bay Area. Today, we're chatting with San Francisco Chronicle reporters Sarah Ravani and Megan Cassidy, who wrote a story that looks at police reform efforts in four major cities, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, and Berkeley. Thank you both for joining. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. So I want to start here. Police reform became such buzzwords last summer, along with phrases and mottos like defund the police, abolish the police. So, Megan, I want to start with you. What are we talking about exactly when we say police reform? What were Bay Area protesters demanding last summer? Yeah, I I think that the term police reform has really kind of evolved over the past few years. Um, At this point now, it's just really become this catch-all for any sort of policy changes that are intended to curb the types of police violence, uh, particularly against people of color, that we've seen over and over again in cities, not just in the Bay Area, but uh, across the nation. So in yesteryear, you know, I'm thinking in the wake of the Ferguson police shooting of Michael Brown in 2014, um, police reforms are really directed specifically at police officers. Um, There would be training and de-escalation policies that became really popular. uh, And so did crisis intervention teams among police. So that would mean teaching police how to specifically deal with mental health crisis calls that they tend to. Um, And what I think that's changed in this recent movement, um, and you see this manifesting in calls to defund or abolish the police, um, is an effort to really direct a lot of the powers away from police to begin with. So you see efforts to, you know, cut department budgets and redirect funding to Black communities, um, as well as to remove police officers from the equation when it comes to a lot of uh, mental health and homeless and uh, nonviolent calls. And so uh, at, at this moment in time, I think that's the kind of reforms, quote unquote, that I think we'll be seeing more and more of uh, in the coming months and years. Yeah. And of course, those changes are really hard to implement. But Sarah, before we dive into how each major city responded to these types of demands or made these shifts that Megan just mentioned, was there anything about the Bay Area and its approach to police reform maybe compared, say, to other cities across the country? You know, obviously, police reform isn't a discussion that started last summer in the Bay Area. It's been around for years. That's right. I spoke to the vice president of the Law Enforcement Initiative of Center for Policing Equity, and he talked a lot about how police reform and the promise of reform has been around for years. There was implicit bias training, body-worn cameras. There have been tasks for, task forces in the past, police commissions that have been created, complaint processes that have been established. And he said that Black and brown communities have been told for so long that these efforts will solve the problems they experienced from law enforcement. And I think the big question now is, 
Will these reforms really address the underlying issues that people who have been impacted the most experience? You know, the Bay Area is often held up as a model in terms of a region when it comes to social justice or progressive thinking around these issues. From either of your perspectives, has the Bay Area been sort of uniquely positioned to sort of tackle these issues maybe better than other cities or other areas? Well, I think that there are, um, you know, the Bay Area and, you know, in Oakland and San Francisco, they're, you know, deep blue cities. And I think that um, the the voters have, like, the, the voters have been uh, demanding and are more receptive to um, the types, these types of bold reforms than maybe, than maybe other cities would be. So, you know, both, both Oakland and San Francisco have, um, in years past, uh, even before George Floyd, um, uh, implemented some, some pretty, uh, pretty strong reform movements. Like in Oakland, um, they have really severely restricted when, um, police can, um, do a search without a search warrant. That came before the George Floyd protests. Uh, San Francisco had, uh, you know, a killing of a mentally ill man in 2016. And the uh, city was supportive of the Justice Department coming in and issuing this host of recommendations for them. So, um, you know, I think that really a lot of credit goes to the will of uh, the voters in in these cities that have um, leaned relatively, if well, that have leaned pretty liberal um, and have been demanding a lot of these types of changes for a long time. Okay, let's let's start with San Francisco with you, Megan. Last year, in the wake of George Floyd protests, Mayor London Breed announced a four-point plan intended to curb racial disparities in policing and invest specifically in Black communities. What's happening with those initiatives now? Um, so, you know, I think that they are, overall, these initiatives um, are really on a, a pretty good track at the moment. Um I think that's to the credit of uh, San Franciscans that uh, had really demanded a lot of these changes even before George Floyd. And then this movement really just kind of added momentum to them. Um, one of, I, I think, the um, the biggest uh, biggest changes since last year is this, uh, these street crisis teams uh, that are intended to um, provide this non-armed, you know, non-police presence to uh, people who are in mental health crisis. They're finally off the ground. They're they're still kind of in pilot stage, but they are tending to a lot of the calls now. Um, and then the uh, the city is also uh, has also vowed to direct 120 million dollars from um, law enforcement. That's both police and um, and the sheriff's office over into black communities. So that's going to help benefit uh, programs that include job placement, uh, housing opportunities, and early childhood education. Uh, Some of the other initiatives really didn't have as much of an impact as I think that uh, maybe they would have in other cities. So Breed had mentioned that she wanted to place a ban on military-grade weapons. Well, it turns out that there that SFPD really wasn't using military-grade weapons in the first place. And so that, that call to action really kind of just resulted in codifying that ban. 
and really just not doing something that they had never really done in the past. Right. And we actually talked to Trisha Thadani last week, and she followed the new team of mental health experts that you just mentioned, who are now responding to 911 calls in place of police. And I think one thing that stood out to me in that conversation was that she mentioned it's just, as of now, just a drop in the bucket. I believe the team was just, you know, a few people and actually to address the need in the city? Would it require expanding that program much further? So what kind of feedback, even though these changes have been sort of small and incremental, what kind of feedback is the community giving to programs like those crisis teams? Yeah, you know, I really haven't heard um, any sort of um, just overarching criticism of of these crisis teams, except for the fact that that they are just simply not enough at the moment. Um, and so what what the city is planning to do is really ramp up these efforts. So right now there are four mental health crisis teams. Uh, by the middle of the summer, there, there should be six, uh, and that will address mental health calls 24-7. But still, e- even those types of calls, ones that are you know, involving a potentially mentally ill or drug-addicted or homeless person that's in crisis, but not violent, that's still just only a sliver of the types of mental health calls that police have to deal with um, and uh, and actually uh, non-criminal calls that police have to deal with. So what the city is doing now is uh, kind of sifting through other non-criminal and non-violent police calls and seeing where else we can direct resources that would take this badge and the gun and all of the issues that come with that out of the equation. So one example is they're starting these wellness teams that will respond to, let's say, if somebody's sprawled out on a sidewalk um, or if somebody's, uh, you know, calling because grandma's not picking up the phone. Um, and then they're also planning on expanding uh, the civilian response to things like traffic citations or even things like a uh, you know, dog wandering the street or or juveniles. So I, I or juveniles um, that are you know, getting in a fight with their, with their parents. Um, so I think that we will start to see uh, more and more of a, a kind of uh, diversifying who is going to respond to these calls that have traditionally almost always gone to police. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I know that the Justice Department had actually made recommendations back in 2016 uh, after the police killing of a mentally ill um, man. And does the time, I mean, it's been some years after that. Is Has this accelerated the timeline for San Francisco? Are they feeling finally the pressure to actually implement some of those specific recommendations finally? So, yeah, the department has been criticized for falling behind schedule on these reforms. But uh, Chief Scott said that last year's movements have really inspired them to step up their game and that now uh, they have just submitted 253 of these 272 recommendations and that they have been found um, in significant compliance with 183 of them. That sounds like progress. Um, And Sarah, why don't we turn our attention to Oakland? Oakland City Council has made a commitment to slash their budget by half, by about $150 million. So where does that stand now? 
That's right. So last summer, um, the Oakland City Council committed to slashing the police budget in half. And they created a 17-member task force, the Reimagine Public Safety Task Force, to kind of look and analyze how that could be done. Um, where should that investment go? Uh, what programs should be prioritized? And so this year, that task force um, came up with a list of 88 recommendations. And earlier this month, the city council voted to prioritize 12 of those recommendations. Those recommendations include a long-term investment in macro, which would be a pilot program to dispatch counselors and paramedics from the fire department to mental health crises instead of police officers, kind of similar to what San Francisco is doing. And the the other priorities include investing in crisis hotlines outside of the 911 emergency system, transferring funds to the city's Department of Violence Prevention, supporting services for domestic violence survivors, and moving most of the city's traffic enforcement to the Transportation Department. The council also approved a continuation of the reimagine process so that it would continue into a second phase. And all of this is still being determined. The council is currently in discussion to develop the city's next two-year budget, which will be passed on June 30th. So we're all kind of waiting to see um, what that budget is going to look like. You know, I spoke to John Jones III, who is a part of the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force that you mentioned, which is, you know, looking for ways to slash the budget. Um, but, you know, at the same time, he mentioned Oakland has experienced this surge in violent crimes and shootings. I know just the other week we saw that story about the party bus and two young women being killed. Um, so how has this spike in violence sort of complicated what we're calling police reform in Oakland and calls to slash the budget? That seems like that could potentially be concerning. I think more so than complicated, it's really required the city council to be thoughtful and deliberate about the changes they want to make. And that's why, you know, they voted to extend the reimagine process. They voted to prioritize 12 recommendations rather than all 88, because I think they recognize that there is this surge in crime and any, you know, major changes coming to the police budget or to the police department's functions are obviously going to take a lot more time than a year, a year of work. Right. And certainly we know Oakland and San Francisco got a lot of attention, part of the national attention uh, with these large protests, but we know that demands were being made in cities like San Jose also. So what's being done there, Megan? So yeah, last June, um, the San Jose mayor, uh, Sam Licardo, he laid out a plan that he said would uh, help uh, and reinforce police accountability uh, and importantly, it would take a lot of the uh, powers to investigate, let's say, like police misconduct and uh, and police uses of force, uh, divert that over to an outside agency. Um, he actually did stop short of supporting any sort of defunding of the department, saying that the uh, the police department was already understaffed. So it was kind of a uh, p police reform light <laughs> coming from um, the city of San Jose. Um, and some of those some of those changes or some of those initiatives uh, have moved forward uh, while other ones have stalled um, or, or even died. 
So city officials are still negotiating with the police union whether whether an independent agency can oversee misconduct allegations. Uh, but the but meanwhile the voting the voters overwhelmingly approved this uh, this effort that would give a police auditor a broader scope of review over police use of force incidents. So they have uh, made some success. They they've had some successes so far, but the mayor himself will uh, will concede that uh, this has been uh, slow going and that the the steps are limited. But he believes that they're on the right path. You called it police reform light. So you know how have people actually responded? You the the, the changes might be a little bit piecemeal or smaller, but do people think they're at least leading towards tangible change or reform? That that doesn't seem to be the uh, the response that uh, that I got from members of the community. I, I spoke to a public defender who you know obviously. Uh, has a lot of experience uh, dealing with the criminal justice system in San Jose, and he mentioned that there. He mentioned this um, police killing from just back in January that uh, really he he believes could have been prevented by the types of police reforms that people are calling for. Um, so this this guy was apparently he was a suspect in a major crime spree, but. Uh, was running from police, was unarmed, and uh, and was eventually or, or eventually turned out to be unarmed. Although police believed that uh, he was taking a gun out of his waistband, um, but uh, anti-police violence advocate advocates point to that incident as um, as evidence that. Police reforms really have been way too slow to the uptake in San Jose, and that uh, this death could have been prevented. And going back to the East Bay with you, Sarah, I understand that in Berkeley, there were similar promises made, like in Oakland, to cut their department's budget in half. But this will take time. But why, why are they saying this will take time? So when I spoke to the Berkeley mayor, he said, you know, bigger structural changes do take time. Some of them require changes in law, negotiating with the police unions. But he was basically saying that the city has to begin that work. Um, you know, creating a department like the Berkeley Department of Transportation to take over uh, traffic enforcement, he was saying, would require a state law. But while they wait for that to happen, which could take two to three years, the city right now is working to kind of create like the building blocks to put everything into place so that when that state law happens, if it happens, but when it happens, um, they'll be ready to launch. And I think, you know, we have to remember that a lot of the conversations that are happening, you know, in Oakland and Berkeley and elsewhere in the Bay Area these are systemic changes to an institution that has existed for generations. City leaders, you know, in the East Bay have acknowledged that slashing department budgets in half, that's a lofty goal. Um, and they want to be deliberate. They want this to be a success. So I think that's why it's also going to take a little bit more time. Right. I mean, you mentioned, and it seems obvious, to to actually make changes, this is a structural change. And are they also taking into account how they're going to track and progress this change? What does success look for look like to them? And is that implemented into the systems in which they're evaluating their, their own performance? 
Yeah, I think we have to remember these systems that they're creating are still in very preliminary stages. I mean, for a lot of, I mean, for most cities, I think this is very uncharted territory. I mean, that's what I heard a lot speaking to mayor, um, the mayor of Berkeley. That's what I heard speaking to policing experts. Um, This is uncharted territory for them. They're not looking at necessarily an existing program in a different city to create these, these new departments, these new programs. So I think, you know, the success and how that'll look and how that'll be tracked is all part of this process that they're undertaking right now and kind of remains to be seen. But I think everyone is hoping for a safer city, less crime, um, more services. I mean, that's really the intention behind a lot of these efforts. Yeah. And I think one thing that has stayed with me in my conversation with John Jones III, the East Oakland activist, who's part of the Oakland Public Safety Task Force, you know, he said one of the things that really made impression on him on whether or not these George Floyd protests actually made change or is going to make long-lasting change is it depends on whether or not the the experiences of impacted communities are actually taken into account or are actually centralized in these efforts. And, you know, you had mentioned in San Francisco, you know, there's efforts to reroute police funds towards the black community. But do you feel like that kind of intentionality around incorporating the voices and needs of people directly is actually being woven into some of these decisions? I think the council is trying. Um, you know, there was a 17-member reimagined public safety task force, but there were dozens of advisory groups that were really involved in coming up and advising um, the recommendations that the task force settled on. You know, I, I did a story, um, you know, in December about two youths that were part of the reimagined public safety task force. But they had their own advisory committee separate from the task force to talk about what what recommendations they as a group wanted to push for. Um, And they included youth from across the city. In addition to that, they were also sending out citywide surveys to get feedback from people about what they should be prioritizing as they participate in the task force. So I think the council is trying But we will really see as the budget is determined and what kind of impact that has on the city. There are a lot of people in the city, in Oakland, that support more police. So it's really a fine balancing act of that the council kind of has to play with. So, Megan, I know that you've been reporting on the police for about a decade almost. And so I I wonder for you, as a reporter... Does this moment, you know, one year after George Floyd's death and all the protests that ensued from it, does this feel different for you? And how are you going to be looking at this issue moving forward? Uh, You know, it it does feel different. Um, You know, I I was around when the Michael Brown protests were happening uh, in 2014. And even then, um, I just didn't see the kind of uh, momentum that we're seeing now. Um, I, I think that even as, you know, even as recently as, you know, two years ago, the idea of slashing a police department's budget in half would have would have just been deemed radical and, and just 
the fact that these these ideas are now um, coming out of the mouths of um, big city uh, mayors and city officials, you know, maybe we won't hit all of those goals, uh, but I think that it is uh, pushing the movement uh, in a direction that we haven't seen before. What I'll be looking for in the future is, um, you know, how do we define success? Is it measured in um, decreasing complaints that come in uh, against police officers, um, you know, a decrease in types of uses of force? Or is it measured in, um, you know, the amount of times that we can just take these types of volatile situations with police and members of the public off the table. No matter how progress is measured, it seems like there's going to be a, a long tail in terms of following this story, and I appreciate the both of you covering it for us. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you. I want to thank our guests, Sarah Ravani and Megan Cassidy, for filling us in on how police reform is going in the Bay Area. You can check out their story now on sfchronicle.com. A very big thank you to King Kaufman for producing the episode and to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.